0: So I have a few questions with respect to the disconnect that we see at times uh, from the stock pra- uh, prices point of view with respect to the economy. So I'll have a few very quick questions for you. So the first question is that is it possible to have a zero or a negative beta for a stock or an industry per se?
1: So it's difficult to have stocks with zero beta or a negative beta. It's possible to have industries with a zero beta or negative beta. So what I'll tell you is this. There's something called business beta or a right. beta, and then there's something called stock beta. Business beta and stock beta. Stock beta, alright. Business beta is basically comparing the growth in the cash flow from operations of a company with the growth in the GDP of the economy. So, sensitivity of the cash flow,
0: CFO, or the profitability of, part huh? with respect to the changes in the macroeconomic. economy Represented by the GDP. The, of the country, alright. And, and you know how stock beta is
1: calculated. It's so stock beta, becomes just
0: for the uh, students, stock beta again is your sensitivity of the stock price Correct. with respect to the market. Okay. market index. And market again is also a barometer again, it's not representing exactly GDP, Correct. but it's a group of it's stocks pro- put together. It's an approximation. It's proxy.
1: Yeah, it's an approximation. So what I'm trying to say here is that, you know, if you focus on accounting beta right, okay. or, or this business beta, you can clearly identify businesses which will have zero beta, okay. healthcare, FMCG, Correct, right? These are these are products which are non-discretionary consumption. That's not going to stop. It is zero meter. Healthcare to a larger extent than FMCG, I even more concerned. than that. Yeah, yeah. So maybe FMCG is zero point one meter. Healthcare is zero meter, because see, if you have. Uh, 5,000 rupees in your pocket and you need to buy one paracetamol strip, you're going to buy one paracetamol strip. Right. Now tomorrow if you had 5 lakh rupees in your pocket, just because you have more money, you're not going to buy 100 paracetamol strips. Right. You're still going to buy one paracetamol strip. Similarly, if you have 500 rupees in your pocket and you need one paracetamol strip, you're going to buy one paracetamol strip. It's non-discretionary, non-price elastic, zero beta consumption. Right. Right? Another
0: uniqueness of the pharma industry. Another
1: uniqueness of the industry. And at the same time, if you look at the stock prices of some of the healthcare companies, some stock price will be 0.8 beta, some will be 0.6 beta. See you're putting a mathematical equation there. Because right? again, people react. People react. People again are following the dog. Yes, exactly. And so not the man. Not the man. So the business is going to grow, right? The, the, the man is going from point A to point B. Right. Today India spends 3.5% of his GDP on healthcare. Brazil spends okay. 9%. Okay. So we, we are at $2,000 per capita GDP, Brazil is at $9,000. In 15 years, if India's GDP grows at 10% per annum, we'll be at $9,000 per capita GDP.
0: And with Ayushman Bharat. And with Ayushman play. Bharat
1: that's possible. And today Indians spend $73 per capita on healthcare, Brazil spends $800 plus per capita on healthcare. So if next 15 years, when you do the analysis of this, in the next 15 years, if Indian GDP grows at 10, Indian healthcare spend will grow at 18% per annum. Okay. To arrive at where Brazil is today. Right. Right. So it's because it's a leverage on the growth of GDP, right? So last 10 years Indian GDP growth has been five, Indian health market growth has been seven and a half. Right? So so you have to understand that the man is just walking in a straight line. Correct. Now the stocks might do their own bit, you know. But if you're following the man, it's just very simple. To understand so even story. when you're looking at an industry, which is not
0: cyclical per se, right. still the equi- uh, equity beta or the stock beta is going to, going be, to be non-zero. Be, absolutely. It's absolutely. going to be there. But it's a business beta. Because it's a mathematical
1: so- equation of two numbers. No? Right. There, there will be an answer there. Right. And the numbers an are answer.
0: reacting based on how people are behaving. And how that.
1: people are behaving.
0: So, so do you feel that in the current market scenario, does the efficient market hypothesis hold? Are the markets efficient?
1: In the long run, always yes, in the short run, rarely ever. right? See in the long run, uh, what has happened to the Indian economy in the last 10 years, we have grown at 5% compounded return, right? and last 10 years, stock markets have given you better than that return in India. So clearly we are reflecting the growth in the market, GDP is a top right. line number, uh, stock market depends on the bottom line. So obviously we have grown faster than the top line, and that is how you, know, you see uh, the stock market. So long run, always, always efficient market. Short run, rarely really? ever, because there's so much noise, so much that influences the stock returns and the uh, stock prices every day, it can rarely ever be efficient. Be so, do you efficient. believe that the Indian market is kind
0: of 10 to 15 years behind the US market? So, normal observation says, with respect to the economy, with respect to the lifestyle, consumerism, etc., we're kind of lagging about a 10 to 15 year kind of a time frame with respect to the US economy. Yeah. So, do you see that with respect to the stock market
1: as well? i do i do i do feel that we are ten years behind these developed markets simply because we don't have the same variety of products we don't have the same financial literacy financial inclusion that those markets have been able to achieve we are just not there yet but yes covid has accelerated our journey to that right and with the inclusion with the inclusion bit at least and the digitization of uh, financial uh, you know uh, inclusion so i think uh, covid has accelerated us on that path but we still remain a decade behind anything. So uh,
0: on that on that note, has there been a shift in investment strategy or the fundamentals or the way you look at it in terms of uh, pre and post-COVID world? I'm not sure whether we are in the post-COVID world yet, but <laughs> nevertheless.
1: So yeah, there has been some shift, right? You have to evolve with the time. See, fund management also has to evolve. So the shift has been that, you know, we are now looking at each and every business and asking ourselves the question, can digitization disrupt the business? Okay. Or can digitization accelerate the growth in the business? or decelerate the growth of the business or substitute the business model completely.
0: Dr. Lal versus a 1MG.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Dr. Lal versus a 1MG was a classical example we spoke of. Um, so we, we don't know the answers yet, but clearly the framework has evolved since COVID. Digitization has become a very important uh, you know, uh, element of uh, an analysis and pre-COVID, it wasn't just as important uh, element of analysis. So do you also see the role of FII diminishing in the Indian markets? Yes, of late based on what we've observed, you know. Yeah, yeah, so data would suggest it has, it has, because they have been on a selling spree for a very long time now, and we haven't seen market the nose dive the way they used to whenever it right. used to sell. Right. true. Historically, they used to sell, uh, but that again is a f- function of the financial inclusion we are experiencing at this stage where, you know, DIAs just have more money, more muscle yes. in the market and they are able to, you know, sort of buy when these FIS are set And just a while back with the kind of interest rate and inflation, it was just not making sense to invest in anything apart from equity. Exactly. And if you, even if you look at these FIs, right, so they may be selling today again because see, an average Indian investor today is selling small mid-caps and buying large caps. Because he sees turbulent times, right? So he feels small right. and mid-cap business models are fragile. God knows what will happen. And he buys the large cap and he feels safe mm-hmm. there. Similarly, the FIs are doing the same thing in their own context. They are buying developed markets and they are selling emerging markets because they know world turbulence is mm-hmm. coming. So they don't want to be in emerging markets which can be more volatile and they want to be in developed markets which are more stable. Okay, they'll do that. But once all these variables—this inflation, interest rate, war—once all of them stabilize, right? Once the world is back to normal, which can happen in six months, twelve months, twenty-four months, anybody's guess. But once that happens, then these guys have really no alpha to making by staying 100% invested in developed markets. Their alpha really comes when they invest in emerging markets, and the emerging markets perform. So in a stable world, that money is going to come back. Now, when that money comes back, if the level is like say lower. They benefit because they've been able to push it lower before when they went out. And if that level is then high and then they come back, then these guys are going to drive the level even higher. Because at that time, yes. DIAs won't be selling. They'll also be buying. So you can imagine the technical uh, push that the market can get at that point. See, people want to judge the markets today. What have you seen in the last months? You've seen an international war. You've seen an international pandemic. You've seen international hyperinflation. You've seen countries getting bankrupt. Yes. defaulting. You have seen countries under lockdown, no ports, no transport, no labor movement. And if you have gone through all of that and if you are seeing equity still reasonably yes. holding up, yes. that gives you a lot of indication. Still above the pre-pandemic level. Still above the pre-pandemic level. So then you know what's going to happen when all these issues get resolved. You're looking, probably in my personal view, you're looking at a very big bull run once the market okay. stabilizes. Is macroeconomic variable stabilized?
0: So when we are looking at these valuation space, has private equity valuations and the kind of investments that has gone into this uh, asset class, has that kind of impacted the liquidity or the money that could have flown into the listed space? Uh, for example, when we're again looking at Tata buying uh, um, Big Basket or uh, uh, Thyrocare being bought by Farmacy, with the kind of scale that we're looking at in the private equity space, has that anyhow impacted the valuations in listed space?
1: Uh, So no, I don't feel so. I think, uh, see, uh, one, the liquidity is not impacted because the money that goes into private equity is a totally different kind of money. That's probably not going to come to public equity. Okay. Right. So private equity players get a majority of their money from UHNIs and institutions which want to lock in money for 10 years from investment and don't want to look at that money for 10 years. That money is not going to come to public market even if it doesn't go into private equity. Uh, but yes, the valuations read across is always there. So uh, if somebody buys a diagnostic lab for twenty times sales, and the current diagnostic labs are selling for ten times sales or eight times sales, then people will start making comparisons and start saying, Correct. Why yeah. does that lab deserve that kind of a premium in that mm-hmm. market? Why does this lab not deserve that?" So that those read across keep happening, and you know people keep in- taking their own inferences. Whether that was an expensive deal or is this cheaper, you know, you can make both inferences from the gap of valuations. Uh, but yeah, so those comparisons we keep uh, happening on and off, but uh, but it's not that the fund flow would have affected the market. Nothing mm-hmm. as such. Right. as such. All right. The next question I have is that uh, when you're looking at
0: IPOs and we've seen quite a bit of IPOs and uh, contentious IPOs, if I could say so, wherein uh, the target price while getting the IPOs listed was something else and immediately few months down the line, the target prices by the same bankers who uh, came with the IPOs has uh, been revised to almost 50% of that. So given that question, how does an investor look at the IPOs uh, or how does an investor decide as to which IPO to invest
1: in? So I'll give you my framework, there's no right or wrong answer here. I mean, there are multiple ways of doing the same thing. Uh, the way I look at it, I generally don't give money uh, to, in IPOs to those investors where the, it is just a private equity exiting the company, it's a secondary okay. offering. Okay. Uh, because if a private equity holds 25% in a company, wants to sell it to me and he has been investing in the company for 10 years he knows more about it and he's selling it, uh, then why should okay. I be buying it? right? Okay. So when the guy who's most knowledgeable is selling and if I am the less knowledgeable guy, why should I right. be buy, buying from the more knowledgeable guy? This doesn't this, this make sense to my head. So so therefore I don't uh, uh, generally apply for IPOs where companies, it's a secondary offer. Okay. I want to generally apply to those IPOs, uh, if, I, if everything else is okay, apply to those IPOs where they need the money to expand capacity, they need the money to okay. establish another product. So the I money invest. is being invested into the business, Rather in that case I want to go for the IPO. Exactly.
0: Of course, the other factor is remaining positive, oh, positive. and uh, if it is it is just to load off their shares, then right. you're probably not going to be interested. Yeah, then they're probably just uh, trying to... Or at least that's them. a major red flag Exactly, it's a
1: big red flag, generally. And I generally try to avoid companies where there is no cash flow, right? So for okay. me, so that principle sense of investing, when you buy an asset, you are buying future cash flows. Correct. So there should be future cash flows. That's the basic premise of valuation. The basic premise of any security Correct. valuation. Correct. So businesses which are burning cash, right? You need to have a very very strong and convincing view. That in four, five, three years, they start generating
0: cash. You can change the consumer behavior totally. Totally.
1: And, and you, as an analyst or as an investor, need to have a very convinced right. view on that to buy that. I just don't think people thought of it in that fashion when they applied to some of these new age IPOs. And that is why they're burning their hands today. They may be right after five years, these stocks might actually become big successes because they're able to change consumer behavior and right. they're able to become you know, profitable. They may be right, but it was just too soon, I guess. And again, Equity. When you buy any equity, you buy volatility, right? Right. So if you are buying into these IPOs and you are buying volatility, and then the price is becoming volatile, mm-hmm. now don't get put Just go back and recheck your decision. Was it a right decision? If it was a right decision, be arrogant, stand in the face of the market, tell them I'll take it, with, you know, from you for two years, but then it will be my turn. Or if you are wrong, then just go and apologize to Mr. Market, cut your losses, mm-hmm. and say, look, I learned my lesson. I won't do it again. So you need that, again, that depth and that understanding and that
0: thoroughness with your 360 degree POV, POV, the the point of view. So perfect. Uh, One more question. So when you're investing in a company, do you have any kind of a preference with respect to that this company is managed by the promoters Mm -hmm. or I would prefer a company wherein the management is absolutely independent of the promoter family? Do you have
1: any kind of a, no, we generally don't, bias, no, we don't. So basically we want three things from our management, principally speaking, we want integrity, we want honesty, and we want competence, okay, right. So, and there are ways to judge whether they are competent, whether they are being honest and whether they, are, they have integrity in the way they deal with our business partners. So for instance, uh, if you want to look for, let's say, honesty, mm-hmm. so you look for the books of accounts, right, so you get your annual reports, you have their financial statements, you run a few forensic ratios. Let's okay. say we run a ratio like uh, CFO EBITDA. Right. Now let's say this is a particular company uh, does CFO 60% uh, compared to the EBITDA. So CFO EBITDA is 60%, 5-year average. And then you take another 5 companies in the same sub sector and you compute their CFO EBITDA. And if you see that the 5-year the five-year average CFO EBITDA is 80%, but this company is the 60%, then you need to... Be cautious. And, and figure out the reality. There's a red flag there basically. Right. right. Uh, let's say they have something called a business revaluation reserve on their balance sheet. Okay. Right. Why, why do you need a business revaluation reserve on your balance sheet? Why do you have it? Question then, let's say another ratio which we often compute is the company showing that they have cash at the end of the year of 100 crores. When you look at interest income, it is 20 lakhs. Okay. For the year. So if you have 100 crores the of The consistency cash, of the cash flow throughout the year. Exactly. So right. So if you, if you have 100 crores in your cash and you've had it for 12 months, you would have had at least 3 to 4 crores of uh, interest. So basically the interest
0: income would give you the average cash balance you maintain throughout the year. and then More than 100
1: crores isn't really real.
0: Correct. (laughs) It's just your managing of Imaginary numbers. numbers. Yeah. Right? Uh, And we have had (laughs) companies. So how important does the forensic accounting or the forensic financials uh, is in your analysis while choosing a
1: stock? What's the first step? Okay. See, uh, when I started the healthcare product that I just managed at are currently manage, uh, we started screening 190 companies. Okay. Uh, one ninety healthcare companies. Of which only 70 made the cut. Seven zero. Seven zero. So only seventy companies are eligible to be in the portfolio. Okay. Forget about valuation, business structure, right. everything else. The one the other one twenty are not eligible to be in the portfolio. Perfect. Now now that I know I can analyze only seventy companies, my vision is now more right. focused and concentrated. Now on the 70 companies, I divide them in sub diagnostic, hospital right. and uh, you know, branded generics. And then I know which are the right companies to follow and analyze and I make my investment. So 18 of these companies went into my portfolio. But it's 18 out of 70, not 18 out of 190. Because 120, I know I'm never going to invest in because their accounts don't make sense. Okay. So when the accounts don't make sense, then there is no honesty, integrity. So
0: forensic financials would start with ratios and comparison with the industry or the peers. Yes. And then trying to justify or get an answer to it, Yes. if you have a very reasonable justification, it might be acceptable. Absolutely. Otherwise, that's discarded. discarded. for good. Absolutely. And that becomes... So, forensic kinds of becomes your stepping stone or like a screener,
1: it works like a screener. A screener. screener. It's a screener. So, uh, see, when making a portfolio, you can make two types of, or when investing, uh, there are two types of errors you can make, the sampling error one and sampling error two. Okay. Sampling error one, you buy everything, you'll end up buying a few error, bad apples. Right. sampling error 2 you buy very few you'll end up missing some good apples and it's better to do, do the latter exactly so I am I'm am the person who believes in error 2 rather than doing an error 1 I'll create a concentrated portfolio for myself few stocks I'll miss out on some few good stocks I'm happy and okay with that as long as every stock that I pick is a very good happy stock right and I would rather not buy 100 stocks and be wrong on 20 I would rather buy 15 stocks and write on all 15 or at least 14, 13 makes right. sense so it's error 2 rather than error 1 for me. Some some guys would have the style 1, so individual choice. So my choice is error 2, not error 1. Perfect.